Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, this is Robert and you're listening to my dad's podcast, Film Stories. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies. Movies that have stories. This story just sucks a man. This is just the beginning. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, that's all you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, is to talk about, as the title suggests, the stories behind film, the little production stories, the things that brought them to the screen, the marketing problems, distribution challenges, just any stories in and around the production of a movie that I just think are worth talking about, really. Now, the films that I choose tend to have quite a mainstream slant to them. They tend to be films that I've got a particular interest in. Um, That's certainly the case with the two movies I'm going to talk about in this episode of the podcast. Now, you might have noticed I got a guest to introduce the very, very start of the podcast. And that's because the second of the two films I'm going to chat about is a particular favourite that uh, me and my daughter and, and my other children have enjoyed enormously. But I'm going to come to that in a little bit because, first of all, I'm going to take you back to 1997 for the first of the two films we're going to chat about. Here's a clip and then we'll start the conversation the other side of that. Talk to me, guys. Partially polarized set of moving pulses, amplitude modulated. We're locked. Systems check out, signal across the board. What's the frequency? 4.4623 gigahertz. Hydrogen times pi. Told you. Strong sucker, too. I got it. I got it. I got it. I'm patched in. All right, let me hear it. That then was a clip, of course, from 1997's Contact, starring Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey, directed by Robert Zemeckis, and eventually credited to James V. Hart and Michael Goldenberg, the screenplay was, based on the novel by Carl Sagan and the story by Sagan and Andrewan. So... Contact was the project that Robert Zemeckis came to after his Oscar success with Forrest Gump. But actually, the gestation of this one dates a long, long, long way before that point. So, Sagan first, uh, I, I mean, for instance, Sagan wrote the novel Contact in 1985. But the idea for it actually goes back to the 1970s. Contact, then, was a film that was earmarked to be a film first. And so a pitch was put together. Sagan was uh, Sagan's close friend was movie producer Linda Obst, and she uh, she she worked with him at the time. Uh, a pitch was put together, and that pitch was delivered to producer Peter Goober. 
um, as to what contact would be. Uh, off the back of that, a treatment was put together and delivered, and the treatment was penned by Sagan and Andruan. And this case, I mean, this landed on Goober's desk at the end of 1980. And the idea of the film of the film at that stage was something that mixed science and religion into the search for extraterrestrial life. So that kernel was common right through, you know, right, right throughout the final movie as well. That was very much intact. The pitch went to Goober um, then, but then he waited and they waited and waited and waited and waited and Goober is a fairly notorious producer and it would be fair to say he had ideas for the story ideas that didn't really gel with what Sagan and Druin wanted to do so he liked the idea of introducing an estranged teenage son into the story of uh, Ellie Arroway um, the idea being that the, the lead character Ellie ultimately played by Jodie Foster would have an estranged son on Earth. So she would be spending all her time looking for contact elsewhere in the universe, but wouldn't be able to make contact at home. So that that was kind of what he was going for. Um, but that didn't appeal to Sagan and Drew at all. That wasn't the story that they wanted to tell. Now, Goober, um, in the midst of all of this, landed a job at Warner Brothers. And uh, he kept working on the project there and it became a Warner Brothers project in, in the early 80s. And after a few years, it was just getting nowhere. And Sagan was at the point where enough was enough. He had this story. He wanted to tell the story and he wanted to crack on with it. So he began writing it as a novel. And that novel was duly published in 1985. And the novel itself became something of a sensation at that point. It was a, it, it was a huge seller. And if anything, that, I, I mean, it, it ignited and prolonged the desire to turn the story into a film. But the problem there was that Peter Goober was still involved with the project. So they, they knew what they wanted to do with the film. But here was the producer who effectively held the keys to it happening. And for the best part of half a decade, it was his involvement that ultimately stopped its progress to the screen. That it kept going backwards and forwards in development. And uh, I mean, over time, Sagan and Druin dropped away from the project. So... Was, it carried on in gestation in Warner Brothers, but the big turning point was at the end of the 1980s. And I've talked uh, in a previous Film Stories episode about Ghostbusters 2, about the tenure of Dawn Steele at Columbia Pictures as it was bought up by Sony and how she was relieved of her job. And in came uh, Peter Goober to co-run Sony Pictures as it would be at that point. As a consequence, he left Warner Brothers at the end of the 1980s to take that job on. And amongst the projects that he wanted to take with him over to Columbia Pictures was indeed Contact. But Linda Obst, um, who retained some involvement in the project uh, and was, of course, a friend of Sagan's, uh, she pushed back. Uh, she didn't want the film to go with with Goober to his new home, and so Contact stayed a Warner Brothers project. And freed from uh, freed from the element that really had stopped it moving forward, there was progress again in in making the film. And significantly, at this stage, at the the, the late eighties, early nineties, Carl Sagan and Andrewen got back involved in the project. That they had fallen away from it, and here they were back. I mean, as the authors of the piece. 
So there was still time. That, that, I mean, there was still hurdles to go through. And we're going to come to one or two uh, as it headed to production in a second. But significantly, there wasn't yet a, a script that everyone had agreed on. In came a screenwriter called Michael Goldenberg, and it was he who who took another pass at it, and it was getting closer and closer to the film that people wanted to make. Um, and come 1993, then director George Miller got involved, writer-director George Miller, really. And Miller, um, of course, had had enormous success with Warner Brothers. The Mad Max trilogy, as it was at that point, was a Warner Brothers project that Miller had developed and worked for the studio for. He directed The Witches of Eastwick for uh, Warner Brothers in 1987, and by the time we came to 1993, he was working on the film Lorenzo's Oil. He'd been working on that for Universal, starring Nick Nolte and Susan Sarandon. And Lorenzo's Oil, I mean, Lorenzo's Oil will go on and get Oscar, Oscar acclaim and Oscar nominations. And Miller was also in the early stages of developing Babe at this point, which would follow a couple of years later. But he signed on the dotted line to do Contact and he worked with Michael Goldenberg on the screenplay for that. And they kept developing it. And it was Miller and Goldenberg's draft of the script that, uh, I mean, Goldenberg's draft, but with, with Miller's input, that got Jodie Foster interested in the film. Now, Foster was, uh, was and is very careful about the films that she chooses to make. She, You could hardly accuse her across her career of making a film for the sake of making a film. She did the stuff that she could put her heart and soul into. Um, and then she, I mean, she said in interviews, once she commits to something, she commits. And she'd been attached to a film called Christ in the Hot Zone, which was uh, going up against another Warner Brothers project, oddly, Outbreak. And I am going to come to this story uh, in, in a future episode because the story of Outbreak and Crisis in the Hot Zone going head to head is an interesting one. Outbreak got to production first, Crisis in the Hot Zone shut down and Foster uh, Foster's planned project went with it. So she had availability to do contact and she did sign on the dotted line. Um, but there was there was still problems on a studio level. The studio wanted different things. They wanted a flashy ending to the film and the film's not really that um, the uh, Warner Brothers wanted lots of aliens around Earth at the end, or they wanted uh, aliens putting on a, a laser show. They wanted a big wormhole in the film. George Miller also, um, in, in one of the drafts that he, he oversaw, he wanted to take the religious element of the film a bit further to the point where there's a draft of contact going around where the Pope is a, is a, a significant character in the film. Warner Brothers by this stage was looking to get the movie in cinemas for Christmas 1996. But in order to do that, there were some uh, fairly hefty logistical hurdles it had to get through, not least having to build the significant sets that the film would require. So filming would have had to begin in February of 1996 to hit that deadline. Um, and in terms of the pre-production, those sets would have to be built. In, I mean, months beforehand, the work would have to begin. And at the end of 1995, those sets weren't in place. The pre-production wasn't moving and Warner Brothers and George Miller were drifting apart on their view of just what this film should be to the point where, I mean, Miller wanted to take a bit more time to develop it 
Uh, Warner Brothers didn't. They'd waited a long time for this. They wanted it sooner. And out of the blue, um, as the story goes, they fired George Miller. That George Miller never apparently saw it coming. In fact, Jodie Foster said that in an interview with Entertainment Weekly around the time of the film's release. Uh, she said he's an unbelievably inspirational person and a great filmmaker. He's the kind of director that could make a two and a half hour movie about an eye blinking and it would be the most extraordinary, deep, beautiful film. But he's very naive about the business. And she reiterates the exact phrase, George did not see it coming. So much so, in fact, that Miller would sit, uh, would file suit against the studio for breach of contract, uh, a, a lawsuit that ultimately was unsuccessful. Warner Brothers, though, was very keen to keep, I mean, it got, it, it got rid of Miller, but it needed another director fast, else this project faced ju just interminable development hell. Um, and, and Robert Zemeckis came into the frame. Now, Robert Zemeckis had already been in the frame for contact, that he'd actually been offered contact before George Miller took it, took it on. But he was, was a huge fan of the script right up to the ending, because at that point, this was the ending with the alien light show, the aliens around Earth. And, and that was it. Zemeckis was out. He read that and just didn't want to do that version of the story. This time, the boot was a little bit on the on the other foot. Warner Brothers need, had sunk lots of money into development, had a chance to get this film made. It had a movie star attached and Zemeckis was offered the job. And this time on the condition that he could change the ending. Now, all the while, while this was going on, Zemeckis signed on the dotted line and Carl Sagan was watching. You know, he was he was involved, but he was also becoming ill, um, very seriously ill, as it would happen. Sagan, however, warmed to Robert Zemeckis and Zemeckis very much brought him into the project, brought him into the creative process. Matthew McConaughey was uh, then hot off the back of A Time to Kill. Um, he, he was the next big thing in Hollywood at that point before he went through rom-com uh, zone, which I'm sure I'll come to at some point as well. Um, but McConaughey was added to the cast and Carl Sagan was brought in to explain the project, the, the, the project, the background to it, the science behind it to all of the cast. And Sagan was passionate about the science of the film being absolutely right. And finally, Contact was able to push into production in 1996 that Zemeckis was able to combine, and, and he's surely one of the most talented people in Hollywood for this, to combine his groundbreaking digital work with a very human story. And he did get the, I don't want to spoil the exact ending in case you've not seen it, but he did get what you'd suggest, what I'd suggest is a far more appropriate ending to the, to the film as a consequence. Sagan, though, would, uh, would, would tragically lose his battle against illness while the film was still in production. And at the end of December 1996, he lost his life. And the film is the dedication at the end of the film for Carl is clearly very much for him. Um, shortly thereafter, with production still ongoing, Francis Ford Coppola, um, of course, legendary uh, Hollywood filmmaker, le legendary American filmmaker, Francis Ford Coppola, served legal papers against the film as well, which was deemed quite, it was, it was deemed very uncomfortable and inappropriate timing. But he argued that uh, that that he'd worked on the story in the in the mid seven mid to late seventies with Carl Sagan as well, and the timing of the filing of his papers raised lots of question marks. And ultimately, too, that suit was unsuccessful. But it was unsuccessful because it was deemed out of time, and if anything, a little bit opportunistic. 
couple of other little bits and bobs um, about the film worth looking at. The sequences where Bill Clinton is edited into the film uh, without the permission of the White House, as it would happen. In the original novel, the American president is female, um, and Zemeckis and his team were were head scratching as to as to how to cast how to cast the role, um, and they they did look at they did look at a male president in the end, and they they were looking for Sidney Poitier to take on the role of the president in Contact, but Poitier had a choice between two projects, and he opted to make the Jackal, the remake of the Day of the Jackal, the Jackal with Bruce Willis. And then um, there was a press conference where uh, Bill Clinton was talking about a real-life Arctic meteor. And it was one of those moments where it felt like it had fallen into the filmmaker's laps a little bit. And so without the White House permission, they did edit that footage into the film. And it did cause a little bit of pushback uh, from the White House as well. But it was one of lots of different ways that Zemeckis brought digital trickery into the film. The astounding opening shot uh, remains incredible, I'd suggest. Also, it's worth having a, a search on... YouTube to see a breakdown of the mirror shot at the start and and how it couldn't ha- actually happen in real life but it's still a fascinating piece of trickery to look at. The film was duly completed and released in the summer of 1997 and the summer of 1997 was not a good time for Warner Brothers. It was uh, a, a season where its big hitting films were misfiring. Batman and Robin being the most notable example but it had a couple of very big blockbuster failures and big budget failures. There was a comedy called Father's Day in the mix with Robin Williams and Billy Crystal. He expected to be a huge hit and was anything but. Contact was its biggest hit of the summer. But given that the film had cost about $90 uh, $90 million to realise, it still wasn't a massively profitable film. Nonetheless, I do think it's a really intelligent, really strong piece of blockbuster sci-fi. And it was interesting when Christopher Nolan made Interstellar a couple of years ago that the parallels were there. It felt like it had been that long since we'd had a huge studio film that dealt with some of the stuff that Contact was trying to do. I think the film stands up enormously well as well. And I think it's it's extensive battle to bring it to the screen, um, which spanned, what, nearly two decades, was very, very worth going through. If you've not had the chance, do check it out. Uh, one further thing. Um, it was one of the very first DVD releases to really go to town on extra features. And as a consequence, whereas now we struggle to get a single director's commentary on a DVD or Blu-ray release, uh, if you dig out the contact releases, there's some amazing behind the scenes stuff on it, including a couple of really informative and really interesting commentary tracks. I do urge you to seek them out. Just a quick uh, note before we get on to our second film. I'm going to try putting this in the middle of the podcast because Film Stories needs all the help it can get. We are in a, an independent venture. If you like this podcast, please do that really boring thing of going and giving it 9 million stars on your on your podcast uh, platform of choice. Every review, every bit of exposure we get for it uh, helps enormously. I'm going to move on, though, to the second film of this episode, the one introduced by my daughter. Well, the reason you've got my daughter introducing the podcast right at the start, because she loves, I love, my kids love, we all love Captain Underpants. So I'm going to play you a clip um, and then we'll get into the story the other side of that. Where'd he go now? To the sky! think a guy like him would be easy to find. Found him! Stand down, you giant ape monster! Giant ape monster? 
What is he talking? <gasps> Your days of terrifying this town are over. Mr. Krupp, I mean, Captain Underpants, you can't actually fly. Now I take to the sky like an ostrich. Ah, love it, love it, love it. That's 2017's Captain Underpants, the first and sadly only epic movie. Um, directed by David Soren. Uh, you heard Ed Helms there as the voice of Captain Underpants. Uh, it's based on the series of books, of course, by Dave Pilkey, who um, wasn't actually interested in the first instance in selling the film rights and TV rights, in fact, to his work that the first book came out in um I think 1997 and he was he was resistant to selling the right the, the the screen rights to it and it wasn't until 2011 that he made it known through his agents that he was interested he, he was he was finally interested and open to the idea of a screen adaptation of the captain underpants series um at that point i think seven or eight different books had come out in the series they'd become hugely popular now dreamworks animation had been uh, had been interested and had been in contact with pilkey beforehand with the idea of by of making a film out of captain underpants and so when the auction came round for the right, uh, they were very much one of the interested parties. They were not the only interested party, but they were willing to go. Well, they, they really went over and above and really pushed to secure the right. So, for instance, when Pilkey came in for a, a tour of the DreamWorks animation facility in California, as it was at the, uh, as it's at the time, uh, all the staff were wearing underpants over their clothes, much to the author's amusement. The announcement that DreamWorks was successful in securing the rights came in October 2011 and it was added to a very aggressive slate of animated projects that DreamWorks had at that point. This was at a point where DreamWorks animation was arguably at its high, that routinely its films were grossing half a billion dollars at the American box office and this was the point then that it was really looking to ramp up its pipeline, that it was looking to produce three animated films a year. In 2013, um, after, uh, after development work on the, on, on the project had been ongoing for a couple of years, um, Rob Letterman, who would go on to do Goosebumps and did Gulliver's Travels, signed on the dotted line to direct the film. Now, at this stage, a screenplay was in place. Nicholas Stoller, the director of the Bad Neighbours movies, Neighbours if you're in the US, um, and co-writer on the two most recent Muppets films, uh, he had put a script together and it looked as if the project at this stage, come the, come the end of 2013, was full steam ahead. That was, uh, I mean, that, that impression was further enhanced by the casting news that came at the start of 2014. The voice cast um, that would actually finish the film was put in place at that point that Kevin Hart, Ed Helms, Thomas Middleditch, Nick Kroll and jo soon to be Academy Award winner Jordan Peele um, rounded out the voice ensemble for the movie. And at that point, DreamWorks, which was, st which was still having its films released by 20th Century Fox at this point, announced a release date of January 2017. So things could get moving. The problems. Well, the problems soon started to mount. And they were corporate problems as well, as much as anything else. 
because DreamWorks started to hit a, a tricky patch. At the end of 2012, the box office for the hugely underrated, in my view, Rise of the Guardians, directed by Peter Ramsey, who's on the verge of, I mean, he's just won a Golden Globe for directing Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, co-directing it. Um, he, he, his adaptation of R Rise of the Guardians just fell a little bit short at the box office. It was against the likes of Twilight and, and Skyfall, but nonetheless, it was a real jolt to DreamWorks. But it wasn't the only one. Turbo would follow the following year. Mr. Peabody and Sherman, they fell below box office expectations. Into 2014, and whilst the brilliant Hair Train Your Dragon 2 was a very was a big hit, it wasn't a hit of the size that DreamWorks Animation was hoping and expecting. That I think the uh, I mean th th there are moments in Hair Train Your Dragon 2 I remember going to see at the movies with my kids, and bits of it are quite upsetting. Um, not in not in a bad way, you know. I, I I think films should go into all kinds of emotional areas, but it wasn't the it wasn't the you know near billion dollar grosser that. I think they were hoping for at that point come towards the end of 2014 the penguins of Madagascar continued the run and so whilst DreamWorks had a hit in the midst of all of this with the crudes it was in trouble it, it had the most aggressive slate um, it, it, it had ever had it was developing umpteen movies it was trying to ramp up the amount of films it's going to make and the money wasn't coming in uh, the, the money wasn't coming in in the quantity required and this led to a reorganisation at the start of 2015 one that saw many films shelved I mean I mean, there's one film uh, Boo the Bureau of Otherworldly Operations that was nearly finished uh, which must have had a nine figure investment in it and it was shelved. I mean, it sat somewhere on a shelf, pretty much done. And at some point, maybe we'll see it. But that was a massive write-off for a studio that wasn't awash with cash at the point. So, in the midst of all of this, as part of the reorganisation, Captain Underpants uh, stayed on the slate. But it was going to take a different path to get it made. Because this was going to be the film that was made outside of the studio's usual pipeline. The entirety of it was that it was going to, the animation wasn't going to be done in California. I mean, DreamWorks had outsourced, um, outsourced action sequences and stuff before, I think, in the second Kung Fu Panda film. But this was pretty much the whole lot. So that animation was done at Micros Image in Canada te and Technicolor, Technicolor Animation Productions in France. There was a very different aesthetic to the film as a consequence, and this was deliberate, that what they wanted to move away from was, if anything, the more DreamWorks-esque aesthetic to mirror the look of the books, because the books have umpteen illustrations which have a very particular look and feel to them, and they really wanted to capture that. The film was able to mirror parts of the book you know that the flipper armor sequence when you're expecting a big action sequence it pulls back and you get a book being flipped and it's lovely and it, it gives it a real distinction in the midst of the reorganization though there was reorganization on the project itself um, outside of it moving it, it moving elsewhere in the pipeline so the news at the start of 2015 was that rob letterman was leaving the project and he would still be lightly involved with it as i understand um but that's when David Soren, who had conceived and directed Turbo, I think Turbo's a fun film, um, was, was recruited to take on directing the movie. And this was to Dave Pilkey's relief because Dave Pilkey was a Turbo fan and he hadn't been entirely comfortable with the, with the direction that the Captain Underpants film was going through at this point. He sat down with, he sat down with David Soren 
And Soren took him through what he thought the movie should be. And Pilkey's talked about the relief that he just felt Soren just completely got it and trusted him. And the two, uh, I, I mean, I, that trust was uh, w- was more than rewarded come the end of the film. The release date by this stage had moved to March 2017. It would delay again to the summer of 2017 but a further shadow over it was the impending end of the distribution deal between 20th Century Fox and DreamWorks Animation. So DreamWorks had previously had their films distributed by Paramount. Fox had won the bidding rights once the Paramount deal had ended and then come the uh, come the end of the Fox deal well where were they going to land next? In fact, as it turned out, there was a bigger problem. Who would own DreamWorks next? Because the studio was up for sale, that those financial problems hadn't resolved and it was looking for a new home. And in the midst of the production of Captain Underpants, the DreamWorks animation would be acquired by Comcast. So effectively would become part of Universal Pictures. Again, as a consequence of this, all uh, films around, uh, uh, films elsewhere on the DreamWorks slate were being shut down. And yet, and yet, Captain Underpants kept going. And Soren's talked about this. Um, I, I mean, I, I spoke to him a year, or, a year or so ago, and he said it was a bizarre situation. We were in many ways, for these are his words, we were in many ways fortunate that when Comcast bought DreamWorks, we were pretty far along on the movie. We were midway through layout, and creatively the movie was going smoothly. We were also a cheap date I think the new execs were fascinated by the model we were creating. And as he would go on to note, there was no real creative or financial reason to shut it down. They let us do our thing and finish the movie. We largely had ourselves to account to to make the best movie we could. And yet Soren also acknowledged that around him, that around him at the studio, things were very difficult, that films were being shut down, people were being laid off, and it wasn't the it wasn't the best of times at DreamWorks Animation. And yet because of where Captain Underpants was positioned in the studio pipeline and the fact that it was outsourced, he, he described it as a little safety bubble. Um, and he, I mean, he'd come onto the project relatively late. And so he would work heavily off instinct um, that, that they, were, they were able to create and come up with all this stuff away from the glare of day-to-day studio. But also they needed to move fast. And I mean, if you're looking for a parallel, look how late in the day Brad Bird um, boarded Ratatouille. There's a film we should talk about at some point that in under two years he refashioned that film. I don't think Soren gets enough credit for just how much he had to get through and how quickly. Although he, he would give the credit too to the, the team who worked on the film and rightly so. There were little bits and bobs um, that, that, that were still being sorted out with regards what tone to take with the film and in particular where the stakes were. One of the things that Soren identified when he came on board is that the stakes, uh, I, I mean, he says that, that they, they were struggling with that when he joined the film. And in particular, the two lead characters, George and Harold, were at loggerheads in the version that was storyboarded at and ready to go when Soren jumped aboard. But that wasn't the tone of the book that the one core of the books is that George and Harold are always best friends and Soren put this to Pilkey and Pil- uh, and described it as the visible relief on his face about the, the, the direction we were we were moving in and that while, whilst he I mean you you I've not got Pilkey's exact take on it but Soren was was saying that he'd obviously been a bit uneasy about the other direction that the film had been going in and knew that it wasn't in character with what he'd created 
What Soren did is here, uh, Soren and his team did, is they brought the stakes down to something small. That in an ecosystem where we're used to films about the end of the world and everyone's going to die, huge destruction and big CG fires, this is actually a film where the biggest threat is two best friends get separated. And that's one of many, many things I absolutely love about this film. I do really love this film. That said, there is one thing that they storyboarded and considered that didn't make it to the final cut. And I sort of wish they that I sort of wish it at least turned up as an extra. And that was at the end of the second act. Uh, David Sorrow is a huge fan, as am I, of Paul Thomas Anderson's film Magnolia. It's one of my favourite films. And there's a bit in Magnolia, of course, where the characters all stop and sing to camera. Um, and Captain Underpants originally had a sequence like that at the end of its second act. All the characters just stopped and sang to camera about how miserable they were. And it just didn't work. But I just love the idea that that's how left field they were considering things. Now, the film was completed. The film came out in the summer of 2017. But it was also the last film that Fox was going to distribute for DreamWorks. And whilst Fox put in a shift on the film, it was also the last film they were doing for DreamWorks. And I I do wonder if that had some degree of impact. That said, I know people who worked on the film in the UK who gave it their all. Um, but there's no getting away from the fact that in the summer where the Emoji movie w- was out, Captain Underpants underperformed, that you had this really lovely, cherishable family film. And it, it just didn't get, oh, it was no failure, but it just didn't get the traction, didn't get the box office in my view it, it very very much deserved and if you're coming to this podcast having never seen the film it's 89 minutes of absolute mayhem and fun that there's innovation in the animation there's willingness to take a storytelling risk but also it's just this story about these two kids they just want to be really good friends that's very 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 funny i do th- I, I mean captain underpants has now moved on to a netflix tv series which had been in the works while the film was going on and that that's a little bit DreamWorks modus operandi anyway and I gather the TV series is particularly good fun as well the books are great but the film I think is really special I think it's a, a, a one of those movies that that will hopefully hopefully grow its audience over time because I just think it just never lets you down it's a huge hit and, and a huge favorite here and I think it would be with you if you've not seen it worth a try anyway now, that's brought to the end, uh, almost the uh, the latest episode of Film Stories with Simon Brew, which is me. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Simon Brew Magazine, um, Film Stories Project on Twitter at Film Stories Pod. But I want to tell you about issue two of Film Stories Magazine, which is now up for pre-order. Um, we're shipping them out uh, from the 21st of January 2019. You can pre-order at filmstories.co.uk. You'll find a huge interview with Mark Kermo talking about secrets of cinema. You'll find all sorts of mayhem and insanity in the issue as well i really hope you enjoy it um if you can support the film stories project we are small independent just just trying to give people opportunity you can find us uh, at our website filmstories.co.uk facebook uh film stories online youtube.com slash film stories you'll find a growing number of video film stories on top of the ones that we do in this podcast and then I'll be back soon, uh, next week if all goes to plan, with another episode of this podcast. And uh, if all goes to plan, a particular favourite film of mine I'm intending to discuss. Until then, thanks as always for your support. Take care and I'll be back again soon. Bye bye.